there's also been phases where I'm like, what am I doing here? Why am I so far away from my family? That I think is important to acknowledge as well, because I think sometimes people see that I'm living abroad. They may see my photos on Instagram, living my best life. I definitely am happy here, but there's also a lot of struggles and things that, you know, I have to deal with that you just have to figure out how to adapt to that people don't often take into account. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman currently based in Spain. I am not only a podcaster, but I'm also a business strategist that helps Black women and women of color leverage their talents and expertise into viable and sustainable businesses that allow them to be professionally fulfilled, financially abundant while pursuing thriving lives abroad. If you're interested in leveraging your talents and your expertise into a business that will financially support you abroad, definitely grab my build a business abroad guide which is free on the website for those of you who are still on your moving abroad journey i do have a resource called moving abroad with intention it is an almost 50 page guide full of thought-provoking journal prompts to get you really clear and confident in your move abroad strategy i really find it to be the foundation of any moving abroad game plan that you come up with because truly to go abroad and cultivate a life well lived, you have to know who you are and what you want and what you consider a life well lived abroad to be. So you can also grab that on the website flourishintheforeign.com slash resources. It is the final week to sign up for the Moving Abroad with Intention course with yours truly. It is a five-week course covering everything from who you are and crafting your own unique vision of a life well lived abroad to country selection, money management, getting a job abroad, and of course, how to settle into your community once you arrive and how to prepare for repatriation. Again, this is the last week to sign up for this course. It is going to be such an amazing time. I'm really excited to chat with the cohort. Now, the course is going to be online lesson plans but also live sessions there's also a specific community crafted specifically for the moving abroad with intention cohort so you guys will have your own group to get to know each other and there is the bonus week of building a business abroad where i am going to walk the cohort from idea to sales and really chat with them about their business ideas if this sounds like something that is interesting to you, please join the cohort. I already have such an amazing group of people who are so eager and so ready to really bet on themselves and take their own dreams seriously. So if you want to be in a community full of vision-led people, people who are determined to go abroad in a manner that is sustainable and is based on them thriving abroad, 
not struggling abroad, definitely join the course today. And I have a very special offer for all of you amazing listeners. If you use the link in the description of this episode to sign up, you will get $100 off the regular price of the course. So join us today. It's going to be so, so much fun. All right, on to the next episode. So today's guest is Maya Dorsey of La Vie Locale, based in Paris, and she has not only a wonderful blog, but also an amazing YouTube channel about all things living in Paris. I really enjoyed this interview with Maya, which we did several, several months ago. In fact, when we recorded it, she was pregnant and due at any moment. And the day after we recorded, she had her lovely baby. So you're going to hear her experiences from moving from the States to Spain and to Paris. But what I find really interesting about this interview, which I don't think we've touched on too much in past interviews, is we talk about her experience purchasing property in Paris, thinking about her retirement as an American who lives abroad, and even applying for French nationality among so many amazing things. But I will let her tell you all about it. My name is Maya Dorsey. I am currently located in Paris, France, and I am 33 years old. So I'm originally from Los Angeles, California, and I left LA actually when I was 18 to go to university. And then I've pretty much lived in other places ever since. Basically growing up in Los Angeles kind of inherently exposed me to different cultures just because it's very diverse and I've always been in schools where it's been very diverse. I remember being in second grade and we used to have these cultural days where we would have presentations by the kids. We would dress up in traditional clothing from your culture and bring food. I was excited for these days, but I also had internal struggles of not really knowing what to present, being a Black American, what should I present? Whereas other classmates, their parents were directly from India or Mexico or Japan, and they would have kimonos or different things and bring really intricate dishes. So I would always come home and be, Mom, what do we make? And it would always be funny what we would end up making. I don't even remember, maybe like apple pies or some sort of soul food or something like that. So I think that has impacted just my appreciation for different cultures. And then Also, my dad, he's always instilled in us this seed of exploration and wanting to see things around Los Angeles. He also used to always take us on little excursions in and around California to national parks and forests. I think that's kind of planted uh, a seed in me to want to explore things outside of my normal setting. But I never had traveled abroad with my family up until high school and we went to the Caribbean for the first time to Jamaica and we went to Mexico but beyond that I had never been anywhere outside of the U.S. It wasn't until actually I got to college which kind of really jump-started my desire um, to want to explore living abroad just because I 
ended up meeting some foreign exchange students. And then I also was able to meet other people that studied abroad. And I was like, oh, this could be something interesting that I would want to do. I asked Maya to tell me about her university experience and if she had the opportunity to study abroad. So I actually went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, completely different than Los Angeles. It was not on my radar of like, okay, I'm from LA and I definitely gonna go want to go to Madison, Wisconsin. I actually got a full ride scholarship with this really awesome program called Posse Foundation. P O S S E. It's a organization that promotes diversity on college campuses. So essentially there's different cities that have Posse Foundation. So I was a part of the Los Angeles one. They have one in Chicago, New York, uh, D.C. It's really expanded since I was involved in it. So they send a cohort of 10 to 12 students. So there's a very intense selection process. And in the end, I think when I, when I did it, we were maybe 3,000. And in the end, they chose 12 people for a cohort to go to University of Wisconsin, of which they have different partner schools. So the five schools that I had a choice was between University of Wisconsin-Madison, University of Michigan, Claremont McKenna, Dickinson, and I don't remember the other one. So you kind of rate them in order of preference, but it's not you're not necessarily going to get your first or second choice. So I actually didn't get my first choice, which was University of Michigan. I got my second choice, which was UW-Madison, and I went there. And I knew that I wanted to get out of Los Angeles. I think that by the end of high school, I want a change of scenery. I want to see something new, but I didn't exactly know where I wanted to go. I didn't have any dream school that I wanted to go to. I just knew I wanted to go away. So getting awarded the Posse Scholarship was pretty awesome just because I also found out very early. So I found out in November when typically you hear back from colleges, maybe in the spring. So I knew where I was going. I did five years there. And through Posse, you actually have the opportunity to study abroad as well. There was a few people in the Posse program that I knew from different cities, from Chicago and New York, who actually studied abroad. And a really good friend, he basically spent most of his time abroad instead of actually on the UW-Madison campus. So I remember there was one semester where he was actually there and we spent a lot of time together because I wanted to hear about his experiences and things like that. He's very social and he used to organize these Friday night dinners where he would invite um, other people that had either studied abroad or other foreign exchange students. So I would go to these dinners. I would love them because it would be such cool conversations of people's cultures or their experiences studying abroad, it really sparked the desire to want to contribute to these conversations and have my own experiences. So I started looking into study abroad programs. I think it was my junior year and I found one. It was a summer program. I was like, okay, maybe I should start with something that's short before doing a semester or something more long-term. So I found a program that was in the Dominican Republic in a little town called Jarabacoa. I've always been interested in health and I was studying psychology at the time, but I was interested in public health. One of my goals was to improve my Spanish. So it was actually a very specific program that was dedicated to public health and nutrition in the Caribbean. And so I said, okay, this would be perfect. I applied, I got in and I spent a summer there 
studying abroad. It was more a research-driven program. So in the three months that I was there, we had to design and conduct a research program or project related to a public health issue in the Dominican Republic, of which I chose adolescent and reproductive health. So after studying abroad in the Dominican Republic, I asked Maya to tell me what she decided to do next. After study abroad, I had one more year left, so I completed that year, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. So I was studying psychology, which I knew that I didn't want to be a therapist, but I wanted to at least have the skills of psychology that could be useful in different settings. So with that, I ended up doing a summer internship the summer after I graduated in New York at a nonprofit that was dedicated to HIV prevention and education, which was kind of in line with what I was kind of observing when I was in Parabacoa in Dominican Republic. So that kind of sparked my interest in wanting to be more hands-on because, like I said, in Dominican Republic, it was research. So we were doing more observation and highlighting what issues were. But in three months, you don't have the capacity to actually impact change. So I said, okay, I wanted to work for a nonprofit that's actually doing the work on the ground. So I was able to do an internship program in New York the summer after I graduated, and I ended up getting hired to work there after. So so New York is a great place to maybe start my career and get experience. And then after about a year, I was like, okay, I so in New York, I have the opportunity to work with a lot of Spanish speaking clients or patients, which I just, I realized I didn't have the the language skills in a professional setting that I would have wanted to be able to better serve the Spanish-speaking community. So I was like, okay, maybe I want to go abroad again and really improve my Spanish so that I can really be able to communicate in a more, I guess, uh, well-rounded way. So like general conversation, that was no problem, but you know, to be able to speak in different capacities professionally as well. It may have just been my environment in New York that I just wasn't feeling. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm a pretty chill person. And I think that I just was not connecting with the city. I enjoyed my time in New York, but I would classify my period of time in New York as a struggle. I was struggling. As far as socially, I was okay. I had family there. I I had friends, actually a lot of friends from college that ended up moving to New York. So in that sense, it was fine. It was just the day-to-day rat race of the grind. Also, I wasn't earning a lot of money either. And a lot of my friends that were working in New York, they were working in finance or banking. So I couldn't really keep up with them when we would go out. So I just was exhausted. I was also working two jobs at the time just so I could pay for my monthly expenses, but also have money to do other things. But I was like, this isn't going to be sustainable. I can't continue living like this. Either I need to make more money at my full-time job or I need to find another solution. So I just, I was over feeling I needed to problem solve and find solutions and kind of make it work. And I wasn't also convinced that New York was the city for me. So I was, okay, let's explore something else, take this break. So I was like, I also do want to go back to school and maybe do my master's in public health. So there was a lot of questions I was starting to ask myself after graduating, which 
was like, okay, do you want to go abroad again and improve your language skills? Do you want to go back to school? What do you want to do? So Maya is struggling in New York and thinking about what she wants to do next. If she wants to go abroad, if she wants to go to graduate school, she wants to improve her Spanish skills. And so I asked her, what did she decide to do? So I decided that I was at a point where I was tired of being in the U.S. and I wanted a break. So I said, "Okay, why don't you look into the possibility to work abroad in some capacity? And so I started looking at different programs and different opportunities, and I ended up finding something in Spain where I could teach English. I never had a desire to really move to Europe. I was more so interested in Latin America. And so I ended up finding a position in Spain, in Sevilla, a small little town, to teach English at a private English school. And I applied, got accepted, and I was like, okay, I think I'm going to do this. So I said, okay, I'll do this for a year, and then we'll see what happens after that to take a little bit of a kind of a gap year to stop working, to explore my interest in improving my Spanish, but also being in a setting where I can be abroad and explore and travel within Europe and then also kind of figure out what I wanted to do as far as school after taking a break. I found this program. It's called ASIC. It's a network where you basically sign up. So I signed up when I was in college and I still had access to the network after. And so you have access to this very large database where you are able to um, do different either exchange programs or work uh, programs for different amounts of time. It could be for a semester abroad or it can be my situation after school for a year. And so I just kind of went through the database to see what opportunities there were available. I found some stuff in Colombia or in Venezuela or different places like that, but I actually got bites from the language learning school in Sevilla within the timeline that I was looking to leave. So I interviewed with the school. It was a private after school kind of program for kids that would go there after school to learn English. And it was perfect too because basically I worked from, I would say, four to like eight every day. So after the afternoon break, after siesta, so it was I had time to explore anything else I wanted to do during the day. And then I would work in the afternoon and then have the evenings to myself. So it worked really well with what I was trying to do because, I mean, teaching English was something that I wanted to do to be able to get experience abroad, but it wasn't the career path that I wanted to really invest in either. So that worked out really nicely. So as many of you know, I have been living in Spain for the past five years in La Rioja and in Barcelona. I've been to Sevilla, but I haven't lived there. So I was super curious to learn more about Maya's experience living in Sevilla. When I thought of Spain, I thought of Barcelona or Madrid or something like that. So I was like, what is this little town? How is it going to be? And so the people there are just super, super warm and welcoming, and I had just a really great time. And I also had a chance to travel a lot just because I did have a lot of free time and 
you know, with the school situation, there was a lot of holidays as well. So I had took advantage of the opportunity to travel within Europe. So I was, okay, at the end of this year, what do you want to do? Do you want to stay in Spain and continue teaching English? I knew that wasn't something that I wanted to do just because also this was in 2011. So there was a really big recession the opportunities to maybe find work in something else wasn't really an option. I looked at grad school programs in Spain, of which there was one that was really interesting that I wanted to do, but I didn't have the actual certificate to prove my language skills. I had improved my Spanish while I was there, but I wasn't taking Spanish classes. I didn't take any sort of exam that said, okay, you have this level which I needed to apply for the program. So by the time I had found the school and looked into applying, it was too late to get all of that paperwork. So I said, okay, let me figure out if I could potentially look for programs in Europe. So my partner, he was French, who I met in New York before moving abroad. He actually had the idea, like, why don't you look into other programs in Europe to go back to school? At the time, I was applying to schools in the U.S. just as a backup because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do after this year. So apply to schools in the States and see what program you get into. And then I also was like, okay, let me look into programs in Europe. So I found a few. And one of the requirements for me was that it would need to be in English if it were outside of Spain, just because I didn't speak another language where I would feel comfortable. I wouldn't have the capacity to do another program in a different country that wasn't in English. So that kind of narrowed down the possibilities. I found a program in Paris that was in English, a public health program, which I applied to and I got into. And that was a deciding factor. Okay, this is what I'm going to do next. So everything kind of just fell into place. So Maya has decided to leave Spain and to attend graduate school in Paris. And so I wanted to know, what was the preparation like for that kind of move? And what did she feel like when she left Spain and finally landed in France? So leaving for Paris, I had come back to the U.S. from Spain. And I spent the summer in Los Angeles to spend time with my family and to work a little bit, just doing random things to save money for moving abroad. I think I was there from maybe June to August. So I had three months there and then I needed to apply for my visa, figure out what I was going to do with all my stuff and then kind of leave. So I remember kind of maybe waiting to the last minute to do that. And I remember I applied for my visa, had to expedite it as well because I waited too long to do that. And I got it two weeks before I was supposed to leave. So it was a little bit of a rush. And then I had stuff still in New York. I had stuff in LA. So I was okay. I need to go to New York and consolidate my things, give a bunch of stuff away. And I was able to leave a few boxes at an aunt's house that lived in Harlem. So I did that. And then I went went back home, packed up my stuff and left stuff in my parents' garage. And then I left to leave for Paris. And I remember just, I think, Up until that period, you're just in the rush of getting ready and not really processing what you're doing. So it wasn't until I got to the airport when I was like, okay, this is really happening. 
I was excited, but I also was exhausted too, just from all the weeks of preparation and just kind of being on the go, go, go. So I slept pretty much my whole flight and then I land. So my boyfriend, as I mentioned, he's French. He wasn't living in Paris. He was living in a town two hours away in Lyon. So he planned to pick me up from the airport. My flight was delayed, very delayed. I think I had a layover somewhere, I don't remember, but it was delayed. We were supposed to have a whole day where we could hang out and see each other before I had to leave to start school. And basically, I arrived super late in the evening in Paris, and I had to meet with my program maybe five hours later because we were doing an orientation outside of Paris in a little town called Rennes. So we literally had maybe five hours from the time that I landed until I had to meet up with my school to go off to Rennes for one week orientation. So I just remember being exhausted, excited, and then thinking, what am I doing? I had this phase, even when I went to Spain, I I do all the things to get to where I need to go. And then I have these moments of processing, what am I doing? So there's no time for like fear or doubt to kind of kick in. I just kind of keep going. And then in the end, I'm already in the country. And then I'm questioning, what am I doing? This is real. So Maya is in Paris to attend graduate school. And this is her first time living in France. And so I wanted to know what her first couple of years living in France was like. One of the biggest challenges for me was that I just was not really prepared for my move. So as I mentioned, I kind of decided I was going to move, go to school, but I didn't think through all of the things that I probably should have, which I totally encourage people to do now. So what do I mean by that? So for example, savings. I had spent three months before moving to kind of work and save, but it wasn't enough. So I anticipated that I would easily be able to find like a side job because I had a student visa, which allows you to work part-time. So I thought I would easily be able to find a job that would cover my living expenses, but forgot I was living in Paris, which is super expensive compared to Sevilla, where I had come from, where it was really cheap. And I just financially was not prepared. And then I also didn't anticipate how intense the program was. So I just thought that I would have a little bit more free time to really do things outside of school in which I didn't have the time to do so because I always had so much homework. And I did end up finding a part-time job. I was doing babysitting and teaching English. So between school and work, I didn't really have time to do anything. I wanted to be taking French lessons and things like that of which I didn't have the time to do. So I would say my first year was really, really difficult just because I also needed to get settled. So all of the things outside of school that I needed to do, find an apartment, get a bank account, just, you know, get settled. I was completely a fish out of water. I realized that even though I understood Spanish, that didn't make it easier to understand French. I didn't understand anything. So I would characterize my two years of school as being intense and being kind of in a bubble of school and this English speaking bubble as well, just because everything that I was doing was in English and I didn't really have time to, you know, meet people outside of school. But I did make an effort to at least 
work, which exposed me to the French language. So the first year I was teaching English and babysitting. And then the second year I was working at a restaurant because I was like, if I potentially want to live here after I need to acquire language skills, just to be able to get around and also potentially for work as well. Attending school, particularly graduate school abroad, is a very popular way to live and work abroad. And so I asked Maya to tell us more about her master's program. The program that I did was a international master in public health. So it was a French school of public health. However, they had a partnership with Columbia University at the time in New York. So the um, we had classes that were taught by French professors as well as professors that would fly over from Columbia. So I thought it was a really good, happy medium of having French professors and then also getting sort of U.S. education in France at the European French price. So it was a two-year program. It's called EHESP, so École des Attitudes en Santé Publique, which means basically uh, French School of Public Health. So I did that program. You have the choice of just doing one year or two years, but I said if I'm going to do a master's, I prefer to do for two years to have time to really get acclimated to Paris, and I don't feel you can squeeze everything you need to know into one year. So I did the two-year program, so I at least knew for my own sanity I needed to be in one place for at least two consecutive years. And so as far as differences education-wise, I think that I obviously had a, a better connection with the professors from the U.S. just because it was a learning style that I was used to. And then for the classes that were taught by French professors, I think also, too, there was a little bit of a language barrier because the program was in English. So there were some professors that spoke English, but it was really difficult kind of trying to understand kind of technical public health things taught by somebody that it's not their native language. So that was a little bit of a challenge. And then also to just, just the format in general of the program was something that I didn't anticipate. It was very intense. So we had what they called modules. We had one week of a certain module. So let's say health promotion for one week. So you learn a lot of information in one week. And then we had one week off where we were supposed to prepare assignments that we had been assigned in the week previously. So it was weird having really intense week of learning a lot of information on a specific topic and then not having a week of classes in which you were supposed to be studying. Some people were just living it up and visiting Paris and things like that. So I think I was having a hard time adjusting to learning a lot of information a short amount of time and then being tested on that. As I said before, attending grad school abroad is a very popular way to live abroad and to launch a career abroad, as you guys have probably known if you've listened to the podcast for some time. And so I asked Maya to give you all some advice about applying, funding, and attending grad school in France. So I am a huge advocate for exploring higher education, grad school, PhD abroad in France or wherever you may be interested in doing so. I mean, as an American, after completing my undergrad, especially since I had a scholarship, I was like, I do not want to incur a lot of debt to go back to school. 
So I was when I was looking at programs in the U.S., I was like, how am I going to pay for this? And I didn't have a very good answer. I was like, it's either I take out a loan. Basically, that was my option. And at the time, I was not feeling the interest rates of the loans. And I just didn't think this was going to be sustainable for the lifestyle that I wanted to live. I did want to go to school, but I didn't want to incur debt. And I also wanted to still be able to do things that would bring me joy. So traveling, working on projects, personal projects, things like that. So one of the biggest things that I loved about doing grad school abroad was just the affordability. So there's a website in France, if you're looking at programs in France, called Campus France. And that's basically the direct hub where you can find all the different programs that are available for higher education in France. So you can find different actual graduate programs if you wanted to do a graduate program. You can find PhD programs and you can also find short-term learning programs. So let's say you want to be, let's say you're interested in cooking or you potentially want to do a culinary class, but something that's a little bit more structured. They have these culinary classes or maybe writing immersions, different things like that. So I encourage people too that maybe don't want to invest in doing a actual graduate program, but want to enhance a skill in a different setting outside of the U.S. to explore those things. And Campus France is the website where you would kind of go to research those things. And it's also an opportunity to explore funding options too, because it's a website where you have the information for programs and then funding and then just resources of how to move abroad and the different, just different things about living in France. So that is a very good resource if you're thinking about going to school. I used it to find my program. I used it to find funding options as well. I would definitely encourage people if you're thinking about going to school It's a very good investment in your education, and you don't have to pay American prices for it. Just to give you a frame of reference, so for example, the program that I did was two-year program. The first year, I think it was 4,800 euros. And then the second year, the tuition went up a little bit. I think it was 5,200 So compared to a program in the U.S., that would have cost me, I think the cheapest program that I was looking at was 20K um, per year. I asked Maya to describe to me her life after she attended grad school. Once I finished school, it was a crucial moment for me because I basically needed to find a job or I would have to leave because I exceeded my options of being able to be there as a student. I completed my two-year program, so it's like, now what do I do? And at the time, the I would say the main options of being able to stay in France was either to be in school, so a student visa, or to work. So And to find work, normally that meant being sponsored by a company that would be willing to, you know, pay for your visa and sponsor you to stay there. Now there's so many other visa options of being a freelancer or working for a startup or having a creative passport. Whereas when I finished school, I was, I had basically very few options. So I ended up finding a loophole 
and finding out that there was a visa. It's called APS, which is basically a visa that allows you to stay in the country for one additional year after completing your graduate studies to look for work. So I applied for that and I said, okay, I have this buffer of one year of where, of which I need to find a, a job and a company that would sponsor my visa. In my second year of my master's, we had to do basically a thesis of which I ended up choosing to go to Australia. So I spent six months in Australia working at a nonprofit that used football to help with health promotion for refugees there. I really enjoyed the work I was doing there, but I knew that I didn't want to stay in Australia after. So strategically, there probably wasn't the best idea for me to go so far away. But when else would I have the opportunity to go to Australia? I had funding through my school to do research there and to work there. So I said, okay, that's great. But once I got back, I was like, okay, what do I do now? I just came back from Australia. I need to find a job. So I was actually quite lucky because through the funding that I had, I was doing research and I was able to continue my research once I got back to work on publishing articles about what I was working on there. So from July to December, after graduating, I had a job through, it's a French public health research chair. And so I was supposed to work on completing the research that I was doing to write articles and present my research in different symposiums and conferences. So I did that up until December. And then I ended up finding a job in February. So I finished school 2014, July, finished the research contract, December 2014, and then February of 2015, I got my first official job at a research unit in Paris. I think that coming out of school, I realized research was kind of the most practical way that I could get work just because in research, in public health, you do a lot of work in English because you're trying to share the information that you've researched or learned with international audiences. So all the publications are in English. So I ended up finding work through my network, my program. The director of the program was like, oh, this research unit is actually looking for people. You should apply. I applied and I got the job. So in France, you have kind of two different types of contracts, a CDD contract, which is like a short-term contract, which I had for one year. And then there's the other type of contract is a CDI contract, which is this indefinite contract that everybody wants to have because you have a lot of job security. As a foreigner, I think a lot of companies kind of err on giving you short-term contracts to kind of see what you can bring to the company before being willing to give you a long-term contract. And also just in the domain of research, you rely on funding based on the research projects that you have. So the project that I was working on was a e-health project. I was in charge of basically implementing this EU-funded project that was on innovative depression treatments using mobile applications. So that was for one year there was funding for my contract and then I needed to find something else. But I was able to at least find work, which helped me to be able to apply 
for Visa to be able to stay. One of my favorite questions to ask my guest, because it varies from person to person so wildly, is when did they feel settled in their new country? It is such a touchy and sensitive subject, usually filled with hilarious stories of really getting acclimated to a new city, a new country, a new region, perhaps even a new language. And so I asked Maya, when did she feel truly settled in her life in Paris? I think a turning point for me was actually finding work and sorting things with my visa. It was super stressful not knowing if you can stay in that not being in your hands. So even once I got my work contract, I ended up having to do a little finagling because originally the company was willing to sponsor my visa. At first they said, yes, we'll sponsor your visa. And then there's some rules about how much you have to earn as a foreigner for them to be able to sponsor your visa. So that's when things started getting tricky just because the funding that we had for the research project, they calculated based on that. So they weren't able to meet the amount that the visa office required you to pay someone that was foreign. So it was getting a little complicated and this is stressing me out. Let me see if there's another way I can get a different visa so I don't have to go through all this extra stress of trying to negotiate the salary with the company. So since my partner is French, we actually decided to apply for a different visa. It's called Vie Privé Familiale, which is a visa for families. So either you're married or there's something called PAX, which is kind of a civil union. So we actually were PAXed, and so we were able to apply for this V Privé and Familia visa, which I did very last minute. So we went through that route, which ended up giving me a lot more flexibility visa-wise because I didn't have to rely on a company sponsoring my visa, and I didn't have to rely on all the other loopholes of having to earn X amount of euros and things like that. So... I think that was really a turning point for me of knowing, okay, I have a little bit more flexibility. I can work in whatever setting that I wanted as well and kind of just have more freedom to do what I wanted visa-wise. And then I would say just among the years, the more that I was developing community, learning the language, getting my groundings, I felt more comfortable. I've had a lot of little wins along the way. It may sound little things. For example, just two days ago, I had to go renew my visa. I was in and out in 15 minutes, had no problems. And that was a win. And there's also been phases where I'm like, what am I doing here? Why am I so far away from my family? That I think is important to acknowledge as well, because I think sometimes people see that I'm living abroad. They may see my photos on Instagram, living my best life. I definitely am happy here, but there's also a lot of struggles and things that you know I have to deal with that you just have to figure out how to adapt to or decide to leave, kind of, that people don't often take into account. So there have been times, and I think a lot of those times have revolved around work. So being on short-term contracts doesn't give you any sort of stability. So after getting my first job, after a year, I had to find something else because funding ran out. 
So just kind of this ongoing cycle of always having to think about what's next and applying to jobs and also to just that in itself is kind of emotionally draining because you know you have skills but also you're in a country where you're taking opportunities away from French people so even when you're applying to jobs you really need to advocate what you can bring to these positions as to why they should hire someone that is foreign versus somebody that is you know a native of the country it's been phases of feeling comfortable feeling uncomfortable and just kind of working through those Hey, I hope that you are enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, please consider supporting the podcast by either becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash flourish foreign, tipping the podcast via Cash App at dollar sign flourish foreign, buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign, or purchasing a piece of production equipment via our Amazon wishlist at flourishintheforeign.com slash support. I also want to invite you all to check out the plethora of resources that I've compiled for you all at the website flourishintheforeign.com slash resources. You will find a book list to help you get, stay, and thrive abroad, as well as the build a business abroad guide and moving abroad with intention guide. All right. Let's continue the show. Purchasing property is such a milestone in anyone's life, regardless of where they live, but probably especially if it's in a country that is not your home country. And so I asked Maya to walk us through the process of purchasing a home in Paris. Last year, I officially got the keys to my apartment. I bought it with my boyfriend, now fiance. It was a a project that we had been thinking about for, I would say, a couple years. We just didn't really know what exactly we wanted to do. At first, we wanted to buy something where we would rent it, so more an investment property where we would still rent an apartment, but it would be an apartment that we would buy and rent out to people on Airbnb or something like that. But we couldn't figure out if that would be worth it. And also too, with the different laws changing with Airbnb, we're like, if we're going to stay in Paris, we might as well invest in something that we can live in. So we started looking at properties in Paris and then realized things in Paris are super, super expensive. And our goal was to have something bigger than what we had at the time. So we were in a 35 meter square apartment, which is about 350 square feet. And we wanted something bigger. Also, too, I was kind of getting to this point where I was feeling a little suffocated being directly in the city and I wanted to have more space and maybe be a little bit outside of the city. So I was comfortable with exploring suburbs that were just right outside of Paris. I didn't want to be too far where I had to take it. It's called RER train, which is a commuter train to get in and out of Paris, but something that was still accessible by metro. So we ended up finding a, a neighborhood which is very up and coming. There's a lot of development projects. The Paris 2024 Olympics, there's going to be an Olympic village over there. So there's a lot of interesting things happening. So I said, okay, we said, okay, let's explore this area. And it's also very close to where we were living before. We were in the northern part of Paris in Montmartre in the 18th. And Saint-Ouen is in the north. And 
it was literally 10 minutes from where we were living before. So I felt comfortable with that side of the city and all of the activities and things that we had to do were in that area. So finally decided on a place and then the location where we wanted to buy, decided that we wanted to buy primary residence. And then we were like, okay, so now what? So we need to figure out how to get our coins in order to actually be able to like buy something. So we started saving money and being really strategic with wanting to make this a realistic goal. So I would say we saved for a good 18 months and worked side hustles. I was doing a lot of work with La Vila Gal, that which which was helping me to fund my savings in addition to working. And basically, once you have figured out where you want to live and you have a solid financial plan, you can that's when you can actually start looking. So I I think last February I was working at a startup and that was a strategic move for me because prior to that I had taken a break from working with contracts. I was doing freelance. I had left my job, was working freelance and the banks were like, this isn't sustainable for us. We need to know that you have a solid job. So I was like, okay, I don't really know what I want to do right now as far as public health in France right now. I'm a very creative person as well. So I was let me try something a little different. I started working in a startup. It was a photo photography related startup because I'm interested in photography. So I was like, okay, let me try this for X amount of time. And they were offering me that CDI contract, which is the indefinite one, which banks like when you're trying to buy something. So in February, I started that job. I had a trial period for three months after that trial period hit or finished, we were able to actively look for something. We found something, put an offer, got accepted. And so the biggest difference, I think, from looking for an apartment or buying property in the U.S. compared to in France is that you find a place, you put an offer, and then you have, once you put the offer, you sign this paper, it's called a compromis de vente, which is a promise to buy. So you sign that and you have three months to get the funding from the bank. Whereas in the U.S., you get pre-approved and then you put offers into places. So we had three months to get funding from the bank, which we were quite lucky in being able to get because we had already talked to our bank about our project and they had saw that we were religiously saving. So they're like, okay, yeah, sure, we can give you a loan. We had looked at other banks as well, but our bank that we were at gave us the best rate and the interest rate was really good. We got 1.36% for 25 years, which was really awesome. Once you have the funding, normally things are supposed to go a bit quicker, but we had some delays because of vacation and stuff like that. We got our keys, moved in. And then started doing renovations, which we decided we would do ourselves, which we saved for. We didn't want to add the renovations that we wanted to do into the total amount of the loan. We were like, we'll just save for that and pay for it out of pocket. So we were able to do that. So that was a huge milestone. Super, super, super happy about that. And it's been a year since we moved in. We finished all our renovations and I completely love our place and I'm so proud of how everything came together and we definitely got in at a good time investment wise because 
from the time we first started looking until now, even the prices have, I wouldn't say doubled, but they've definitely increased from when we first started looking in the neighborhood that we've bought in. So it's definitely been a good investment. As I mentioned before, Maya and I recorded this interview many, many months ago. And at the time, she was very pregnant and just about to give birth. And she actually did give birth the day after our interview. And so during our interview, I asked her to tell me about her experience being pregnant in Paris, her impressions of the French healthcare system as a public health professional, but also how the COVID-19 pandemic affected her experience. It's been very interesting, I would say. I found out I was pregnant in January, so life was still normal. This was before COVID. I... It was a winter. I was feeling all the things. I was excited. I was anxious. I was like, oh, what, is this, what does this even look like? like? I've never been pregnant, period, yet alone pregnant in another country. Where do I start? How do I navigate things? I felt very overwhelmed. And so the first thing that my doctor was, you need to do is, you know, figure out what where you want to give birth and what provider you want to work with. So I really, my OBGYN, but the, where she was affiliated as far as hospital was not convenient to where I live. So she was, I think you should find another doctor. So I found a new doctor that was, that basically works at a clinic, a private clinic near where I live. So that was like, one of the big things that I need to figure out. Once I figured out the admin part, I just was going through all of the new bodily changes. I was super exhausted. I was working still at the time. And I just felt very unlike myself. I just felt like the hormones took over my body and I was just getting through the days. I know the healthcare system very well here just because of my experience studying public health here and then I've used the healthcare system I would say pretty pretty extensively for example last year I had actually a surgery on my hip so growing up I did a lot of sports I ran track and field and I had a wear and tear issue with my hip that needed to be corrected and so I had surgery last March I basically spent three days at the hospital. And then I was um, on sick leave at home for one month of which I was on crutches that whole time. So I actually ended up having a nurse that was coming to my house every day to check on my wound and to give me these shots to help with preventing blood clots. So I was happy with my experience at the hospital. My surgery really went fine. And then I was just impressed by all of the services that I got at home, which was practically free having a nurse come to my house every day I had physical therapy so I have never really been afraid of the the healthcare system here as far as giving birth it was just a matter of figuring out what I had to do and how to navigate how to get into the care that I needed and then keep up with all the prenatal appointments and things like that so in general I'm very happy with um, the healthcare system. When I was pregnant, one of the biggest things that I was thinking about in the beginning was, oh, what is the healthcare going to cost me? But then I forgot, don't worry, everything is integrated into the healthcare system and it's covered. So I have a friend that's actually pregnant in LA 
right now and we're nine months pregnant she's due any day now too and she's a freelancer and she basically is deciding to have a home birth and paying basically everything out of pocket just because she doesn't have you know the same sort of health insurance system as I do here so I'm quite thankful for things like that prenatal care here is very well thought out and very comprehensive So in the first trimester, you have to actually declare that you're pregnant to the Social Security healthcare system. So at 14 weeks, your doctor fills out this paper, letting them know you're pregnant. And that's basically so that you have access to all your prenatal visits. And then in France at six months, basically, when you're six months pregnant, all of your care is 100% covered. And I remember getting a mail basically saying, congratulations, you're pregnant. We're going to be following closely throughout your pregnancy. They gave me a little calendar with all the milestones and things that I needed to uh, remember. So I was like super, I was super happy to receive that. I felt like I was taken care of. They know I'm pregnant and have all the resources that I need. So that's been really great. I just think that in general, this year has been full of lots of unknowns. So once March hit, COVID hit, Things got a little bit complicated because I had so many hopes and things that I was looking forward to doing and during my pregnancy that just have gone out the window. For example, you have these birth preparation classes that are covered through the insurance that you have, the national insurance program, which are normally done in groups, of which for me, that was not the case. I had one-on-one birth preparation classes during the time of COVID, just one-on-one with a midwife through video conference, which was not ideal just because I think for me, I need to see people in person, just language-wise too. I think that it's harder to understand, especially technical information through video. And in general, I've been learning a whole new vocabulary in French related to pregnancy. So that was a bit of a bummer. I just imagine having these experiences like you see in the movies of going to these group prenatal birth preparation classes or Lama's classes and meeting other pregnant women, but that wasn't the reality for me. And then also too, I was just really excited to take the advantage of the time that I wasn't working to go home and visit my family for them to see me while I was pregnant. So I'm pregnant. My parents aren't going to be able to come over for the birth. I wasn't able to go over there. Also, we're in the process of figuring out, so how are we going to manage you guys being able to see the baby? What does that look like? Are we going to FaceTime every day? How are we going to do holidays and things like that? So it's just been a lot of adaptation to this new situation with COVID. I'm happy that in France, things are getting a well, Things are getting a little better. In the beginning of my pregnancy, my partner couldn't come with me to any of my appointments. So that was a bummer as well. All of these milestones. My first sonogram, he wasn't able to come with me. He didn't get to go with me to my monthly prenatal appointments up until maybe six months when things kind of reopened. He was able to come. So it's just been, it's been a lot dealing with pregnancy in general and then dealing with the new safety measures because of COVID, I would say it's been lonely. You know, you've been confined. You're not having these interactions with your providers that you would have liked to or meeting other pregnant women. 
And then also just not being accompanied by your partner to your appointments. It's been it's been really hard, actually. But I'm thankful that right now where I'm at, I'm due any day now. At the moment, my partner is able to come. He's able to come to the hospital. He's able to stay there. I've been well taken care of as far as my providers. I've been able to kind of create a team that's quite holistic. So I have my OBGYN. I'm working with a midwife as well. I have a, I've been doing acupuncture. I've been doing appointments with an osteopath, which is kind of a, I would say kind of a chiropractor, but, but not really. They do manipulations of your body. Mine is specialized in pre and postnatal. So she's been really good in just making sure my hips are balanced and even and making sure my posture is good checking the position of the baby. Just I've been trying to be as holistic with my pregnancy in general and find providers that kind of align with that as well. Applying for citizenship is a process that is usually very tedious and the degree to which it's tedious is obviously dependent upon the country in which you are applying for citizenship. And so I asked Maya to describe her experience applying for French citizenship. I started last year, actually, when I was in the process of moving. And it was also when I was in the process of buying an apartment in Paris. But I also forgot to mention that in addition to the apartment that I bought in Paris, a month later, I bought another property in actually the U.S. with my sister. It's important to, you know be sustainable living abroad. Part of that for me is also maintaining roots in Paris where I live, but also maintaining roots in the U.S. And I think that one thing that was important for me and something that I've been thinking about in my sustainability journey of being an expat is what does retirement look like? It kind of stresses me out just because I, ever since I left New York, I have not been accruing any sort of retirement plan in the U.S. I have been doing so here, but what will that look like for me? So I said, maybe investing in property in the U.S. could be a means to having some sort of supplementary income since the a property that I bought in the U.S. was an investment property. I'm not living there. My sister's living there. We were renting out the second room in Austin. So it's a place that I hadn't seen, but we definitely got a good deal for that. And that was another huge milestone for last year. So yeah, I was dealing with a lot. And so since I technically live outside of Paris in a suburb, just a little outside, I had submitted all of my paperwork to apply for nationality to the naturalization office in Paris. So they received my documents. But since I sent it in after I moved officially from Paris, they sent back all of my papers and were, all your documents are fine, but now that you live outside of Paris, technically you need to resubmit all your stuff to the neighborhood where you live, which is Saint-Ouen. So now I got to start all over. And so I needed to figure out how the process worked where I live because in Paris, basically you have a long list of documents, which, which was a draining. You need to do FBI checks. You need to get birth certificate that's dated within the last three months. You need to get all these tax information in the U.S. and no, in France. And then there was just a lot of stuff. So basically I had gotten everything. And in Paris, you submit all of that stuff by mail. And everything needed to be dated for documents from the U.S. 
they had to be valid. The date had to be good for six months from the dates that you sent it. And for the French documents, everything had to be valid within the last three months. So by the time I figured out how things worked where I lived, it's a bit nice because instead of mailing all of the documents, you just need to get an appointment and you drop everything off. However, I haven't been able to get an appointment since when COVID started. So everything has been very limited. So when I went to renew my visa, I said, okay, I'm going to take advantage of being in the actual office to go to the naturalization French nationality office to get all my questions answered. And I went there and they were like, yeah, right now because of COVID, everything's super saturated and closed. There's nobody actually physically here. You have to get an appointment online, which I've been trying. And basically he was like, yeah, right now it's just really, really hard. There's not a lot of appointments. So I have all my documents. I just need, I'm at the point where I need to successfully get an appointment. And so basically right now, I found out that they put the new appointments online every Monday at 4 p.m. So I go online every Monday at 4 p.m. and they're literally taken within minutes. So I am trying on a daily basis to get an appointment and then it's just going to be a matter of submitting my documents, which is going to be tricky because like I was mentioning They're a bit time sensitive. Once I get an appointment, I would submit my documents. Since I've already submitted them and the Paris office checked them, I know that everything's fine. So after that, it'll just be a matter of having an interview where they make sure you can speak the language, that you're aware of French culture and history. I think they're going to ask questions about, I don't know, random French history things like they would for a green card test or something in the U.S. And then basically that's it. But the time frame from what I've been told is that it can take about 12 to 18 months. I don't know what that's going to look with COVID right now, but I have submitted my visa renewal. I have a visa for two years, but my goal is within that two years to have applied for nationality and to have it. So this will be my final visa renewal. So crossing fingers. Maya has a popular platform and business called La Vie Locale. And so I asked her to tell me about how she started it and what kind of services the business provides. So in the beginning, I was in school for two years. And in that two years, I was not documenting anything. I was too consumer school. I didn't have time to explore Paris. After I finished, I was like, oh, I can breathe. I can explore players. I'm working. I have money to like do things. So I was okay. I'm going to start sharing my experience here as an expat and my discoveries of Paris because I was okay. It's been two years and I really still don't really know the city. And I need to, if I'm going to stay here, I need to have my favorite little cafes or my favorite little spots that I like to go to and let me share these with other people. So that's kind of how it started. And then it kind of evolved because people were interested in what I had to say and the information that I was sharing. And people were also interested in how I moved here. So it kind of transitioned to me helping people that wanted to visit Paris, kind of to discover the city as a local. So La Vila Gal means local life. So my goal was to show what I kind of do here as a local and discovering the city as a local versus a tourist. And so, yeah, transition to me helping other people that wanted to visit Paris, explore the city as a local. So I was doing a lot of trip planning and helping them to discover the city. 
through a different lens, you know, outside of the touristic things. And then also right now where I'm at is that I really think it's important for people that want to move abroad to have the resources to do so. So I'm really invested in motivating other people who are thinking about moving abroad to, you know, do so in a a strategic way so that they can live abroad sustainably, I like to say. So I've, I've, I've been able to move abroad and live here long term, but I have so many things that I wish I would have done differently or resources that I like to share with people just so that they can have a more seamless uh, transition abroad. Because, I mean, I was able to do it. I don't have any regrets, but if I could just pass on to someone else some wisdom or information that I've learned along the way to make it more easy. I I really enjoy doing that. So that's kind of a vlogal in a nutshell as to where we are now. So I still do the trip planning and experience creations for individuals and groups that want to come here um, and discover Paris. I also do the other flip side of encouraging people who want to move to Paris or other places in France to do so and providing them with the resources and services to do so. All right, it's my favorite part of the interview where we talk about wellness. So I asked Maya to describe her definition of wellness and how her experience living abroad has influenced her definition and practice of wellness. My background is being a public health professional. I I think that for me, well-being, wellness versus like health is super important. And wellness is a spectrum for me. It's your own perception of being in good health and all of the elements that comprise health for you or things that are important. So for me, that's having, I would say, a balance and perception of my actual health but then also as far as wellness goes there's an element of happiness and peace for me which has been a big thing when i was in the us i struggled a lot with feeling overwhelmed or stressed out just because of quality of life and one thing that i love about being abroad that has been a big shift for me is just my quality of life in general and that goes back to the wellness piece so for me it's being balanced, happy, and at peace with my health, my actual physical health, my relationships, finances, my professional career, all of those things. And it's a matter of just really being confident in where you are at. So I think that being abroad has helped me to kind of formulate this idea of wellness. It's not just about being physically healthy. It's about having well-being. It's about being comfortable in the relationships that you have, having boundaries. What does that mean for you? Being professionally in a setting that makes you comfortable. All of those elements are important. Finances as well is important. I remember my perception of money in the U.S. was very different than it is now here. I am not so consumed with how much I earn What's important to me is, do I have what I need to be comfortable? Am I happy? Do I have a good quality of life? That's more important to me than how much I earn. And so I think living in France has taught me, and I think this is what, when I start to question, oh, 
do I want to go back to the U.S.? I always kind of stop and think about my quality of life. It has changed drastically from what my quality of life used to look in the U.S. I feel I'm very much at peace here. Quality of life is very good. There's a good work-life balance. People and friends take vacation very seriously. Just at a minimum, you have five to six weeks holiday when you work a normal nine-to-five job. And people don't play around with that. I actually had a job when I worked at a research unit where I had literally nine weeks of vacation per year. So I was like, I don't think I could ever go back to a company where I only had two weeks or something like that in the U.S. And I just think in general, French people, they don't think about it because it's just second nature. But living in a country where you're in a social system where Healthcare is a norm. It's a right for anyone who lives here, even if you're a foreigner. That takes a big stress off of you worrying about having health insurance or being able to get care. I know that, for example, even education, it's affordable. It's something that everybody has access to. So I think all of those elements have impacted my wellness, my peace of mind, because I don't have these, I guess, barriers in my thinking when it comes to different things anymore that I would have when I think about going back to the U.S. Sometimes I do want to move back home, but what does that look like? What do I need to be able to do that? And essentially, I think that I need to either have a very comfortable situation where I have enough money to be able to have health care to pay for my child's education and things like that, that I just would, as a norm, have already here. So I think that One of the biggest things that I'm super grateful for living abroad is just my peace of mind. I used to be very anxiety ridden just because I was always thinking about next steps, plan A, plan B, financial things, things like that. And I mean, I'm not going to say I don't have any worries here, but I do have a sense of a safety net, I guess I would say, when it comes to certain things, healthcare, education that I don't take for granted, that I'm super thankful for, which has just, I bet, I I think has just contributed to my overall wellness and well-being. Thank you so much, Maya, for your patience and also for just being a wonderful, wonderful guest. If you all want to keep up with Maya, you can via social media. So on the internet, you can find me on Instagram at lavilocal. And then I have a website, lavilavcab.com. And yeah, those are the two main places where you can find me online. Thank you again, Maya, for being a wonderful guest. And if you all want to learn more about Maya, check out her show notes page at flourishintheforeign.com slash Maya. And again, if you want to join the Moving Abroad with Intention course and get that $100 off, Be quick and sign up right now. There's a link in the description of this episode and I'd love, love, love to have you. And if you are interested in launching your own podcast, I highly recommend joining WOC Podcasters Insiders Membership. 
I've been a member of this membership for a while now, and honestly, I feel that the reason the podcast has done so well and the reason the podcast is continuing to grow and take on even more exciting opportunities is because of the support and the great advice that I get from WOC Insiders. So if you're wanting to launch your podcast or just get more serious about your podcast or perhaps monetize your podcast, Definitely join the WOC Podcasters Insiders membership today, and you can do so via the link in the description of this episode or on the website, flourishintheforeign.com slash resources. It's a great way for you to support this here podcast at no additional cost to you. If you have not followed the podcast on YouTube or on Instagram, what are you doing? There's a lot of great content on both platforms. On Instagram, I have done many, many, many IG lives, some solo and some with past guests that are jam-packed with amazing gems on moving and living abroad. And on YouTube, I really have a lot of great conversations with some past guests about what they're up to now and how living abroad really has changed their lives. So check it out, youtube.com slash flourish in the foreign and instagram.com slash flourish foreign. As always, thanks so much to Zachary Higgs for producing the music of this here podcast. If you're in need of music for your next creative endeavor, he is definitely your guy. You can find all of his information in the show notes of this episode. And please remember that it's not about getting abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about thriving abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I was speaking with someone else and they were saying to me that those of us who actually live abroad, like you've like crossed this different threshold that you're a very unique person because of the risk that your family feels, that you potentially feels, and all the battles of you leaving the U.S. to come somewhere else, that everyone's looking at you crazy and you may not get a lot of support. But the fact that you're thriving probably means that you have a very strong sense of self and a strong confidence.